Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, today is going to be truly amazing. You know, we have guests come on that are thought leaders and game changers, and this lady is changing the game of movement as we speak. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Um, her name is Tammy Moses. She has a podcast called The Hoarding Solution, and a lot of people are living in the hoard, and a lot of people are getting hurt, especially first responders, when, they're, when they go in to save somebody in the hoard. The house is full of crap. Um, she helps people that are in the hoard get out of the hoard. So definitely check out The Hoarding Solution with Tammy Moses. Guys, this is going to be a great episode. We're going to be talking about some fun things. We're going to be talking about getting back in shape, which is something I need to do because I know shape, round is a shape, but I don't want to be in that shape anymore. So I'm going to follow some of the these things Aaron's talking about. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so pumped that you are on. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I had an amazing time on your show, uh, mm -hmm. even though you made me cry. Uh, but, I didn't mean to. <laughs> but uh, it was amazing. And it really got me to thinking about, you know, relationships and how blessed I am to have the woman that I have in my life. So mm. thank you for bringing that out. Absolutely. So how is your day going today? It's going spectacular. I was I was really pumped to have you on my show and to do this uh, to do this interview as well. I'm I'm very honored to be here. All right. So first, we're going to start out. Uh, tell us where you're born and where you grew up as a little girl, and tell us a little bit about yourself as a little girl. What kind of little girl were you? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up about an hour south of Seattle, Washington, in a little town called Spanaway. And um, I grew up homeschooled till 11 years old. Um, it was a little bit sketchy neighborhood. <laughs> and my mom uh, was a, she had a teaching background and music professional. And she knew the, the test scores in the area and paid, paid attention to it. And they decided as a, a family unit to uh, teach from home. And so she sacrificed a lot of years to make sure that her kids were taken well care of until she felt like she could no longer teach us the next level and sent us off to <laughs> elementary and junior high from there. Um, now, your dad was in retail? Sales? My dad, yeah, my dad um, was in sales for my whole life um, up until 11, um, well, 11 for me. He was a regional sales manager for a uh, company called Jumbo Foods. I think they're still in existence today uh, for multiple states. I want to say four or five states. So he would go to the little mom and pop shops, the little gas stations and make sure they were, uh, you know, the snacks were filled there and a lot of forecasting, predictive sales, things like that. Um, and then he switched to coming home every day and worked nights um, for a, a bread company. So he did inside sales for like mostly grocery stores, like I don't think Costco was one of his clients, but like the Walmarts, the Albertsons, um, Kroger's or Fred Meyer's, things like that. So, 
you know, one thing that, you know, when we were talking, because even when you were interviewing me, mm-hmm. I'm thinking questions that I'm going to be asking you mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because that's just the way that I am. Um, because usually when I talk to somebody, I, I, even, no matter which way it is, I always hang on every single word that they say. Mm-hmm. And one thing that really um, hit home with me is I was in retail, mm-hmm. for, you know, and I would get my daughter off to school in the morning, see her for about an hour. Mm-hmm. And then when I came home, she was in bed mm-hmm. and I felt like I lost those, those nine years yeah. of not having her. But once I got hurt and, you know, even though I'm, you know, I'm blind, I found it a blessing because now I get the honor mm-hmm. to, you know, put her to bed every night yeah. and tell her that daddy loves her. And, you know, I think that's so important that sometimes we get so wrapped around the axle in business and all that that we kind of forget the people that are around us so i just wanted to say thank you for bringing that out that so so people if you're listening to this you know hug your wives and your kids Mm -hmm. every day and try to spend a quality time with with you can as much as you can yeah sorry i just had to put that out there because you know if it touches my heart i'm gonna let people know about it yeah i love that so now you were homeschooled until Mm -hmm. age 11 Mm -hmm. So tell me what it was like going into a regular school after not being around a lot of kids like that. What was that like? It was, uh, it was really challenging to make friends. Um, I had, there was a, there was a couple of girls in the neighborhood. Um, but for the most part, it was a bunch of boys. So I didn't really like how rough they played, you know, outside. Like I'd, I'd play some baseball outside. But when I got to elementary, I remember thinking like people will just come to me. That's how I'll make friends. Not realizing that you actually have to like have a plan and talk to people and not just be in your own little bubble. Um, and my my dad actually was diagnosed with cancer that same year. Uh, I want to say they found out November because I remember the all of his coworkers, he just started working at this job. He wasn't even there six months. And all the coworkers and the bosses, like they set up a, a fund for our family to make sure, because he was a single income earner at this point, three kids under 18 in the house, family of five, like high stress, high financial costs. Um, and they set up a bank account to make sure our house rent was paid and Christmas presents and whatnot were covered for us kids. And um, I, you know, being 11, like you don't know what kids know, but I was pretty intuitive at that point. Um, I remember my teacher having a conversation after I said, well, my dad might die this year. And she's like, what are you talking about? And because we hear what, you know, cancer is like one of the most feared words in seven different languages. I think Les Brown said at one point, Um, so it was a very challenging year, but I got to spend a lot of time, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of time with my dad because he was home (laughs) during that, uh, that healing process. So kind of mixed feelings. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. You know, and I, and I totally get like, sometimes it's like sucks to be blind, but it's other times it's great where I can, like the other day, I just was able to go out for a walk in the street with my daughter holding my hand going, you know, just taking a walk. Mm -hmm. Wow. What a blessing. So sometimes, you know, even during our, our turmoils, there's a blessing wrapped up in it somehow. Absolutely. So what kind of girl were you in high school? 
High school, I was, um, so I started to come out of my shell, if you will. Um, I would say transition from junior high to high school. I started getting into choir and that's when I started getting more confident. Um, and in high school, there was this elite music group I got to be a part of. Uh, you had to audition. You had to be invited to audition. Uh, there was like a ton of people that auditioned, only 10 girls, 10 guys. And I spent most of my high school career uh, just immersed in choir. Um, if I wasn't singing every day after school, we had a, it was an actual class we earned a credit for uh, the entire month of August. Uh, in Washington, you start school in September around Labor Day. So we spent the whole month before the school year working three hours a day, studying our music and our dance moves. Um, and then on the weekends when we weren't practicing, we were up in Seattle uh, before the Seahawks Stadium was made, uh, UW, um, Safeco Field for the Mariners, and we were selling hot dogs, soda, all kinds of stuff. So I didn't have time to get into <laughs> get into trouble because I was I was working because we had trips we got to go on, and um, some of those, I would say, some of the most uh, incredible memories um, from being around others that are like minded. Uh, we took first in every competition except for one. My sophomore year, we got second place. Uh, but just being around those high-level professionals and our director, Mr. Krause, was just a phenomenal leader. Um, and he's still singing today. He taught for almost 40 years, I want to say 35, somewhere around their years, uh, and just expected excellence out of us and provided ample opportunities for us to want to work harder. So. Okay. You know, one thing I love, because um, you said, you know, your mom was into music. Mm -hmm. So what were some of your music, earlier musical influences? Uh, as far as like artists and things like that yeah because like i'm the world's worst guitar player mm -hmm. um, but you know growing up my mom had a lot of records around and i would listen to a lot of 50s music and doo-wop so yeah. that's right and then when i got older you know i got into the 80s hip-hop and stuff like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what kind of influences did you start out with and then what did you eventually evolve into yeah that's a great question so uh a mixture because um, I, I grew up, you know, in this neighborhood that was sketchy with uh, it was at one point in the in the United States, the number one meth labs busted uh, from the police. So lots of there was lots of hip hop, gangster music. Um, and, you know, my oldest brother listened to all that stuff on the radio. So I wanted to be like him. So I had that version of me. And we also were in church all the time so i had like the church music the gospel uh group take six was a big um i'd say gospel jazz group that i listened to a lot boys to men jodeci 112 um mariah carey was like my number one favorite singer uh, as far as female vocalists to try and emulate and still is i'm a hardcore uh -oh. fan i just throw up <laughs> i just throw up in my mouth um just kidding, but you know the one song you talk about, boys to men. Yeah. The one song that gets to me is "Mama." Yes. I you know, and I too. think about my mom all the time, and she's still around, thank God. But mm -hmm. that's one of the songs that I think about mom, and I I cry all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big, I'm a big, a a big softy, so. That's you know. good. No, I love that. And my mom's still around too. And she's actually singing at our next uh, veterans concert, which we'll talk about later. Um, cool. So, yeah. So, now, talk to us, because, you know, like I said, I was in the health and fitness industry for over 30 years. Yeah. How did you get into the health and fitness industry? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I'd say I had a personal interest in it. Um, my mom was a big influence. Um, being homeschooled, I watched her work out. You know, I think at three years old, we were doing Jane Fonda VHS tapes in her bedroom, you know, working out together. Um, the YMCA was a huge influence. I didn't have traditional PE experience through school uh, until high school because um, they had a waiver if you were in multiple music classes, which I was in junior high and uh, so my senior year, I had to get like three credits and I did aerobics and I loved it. I was like, I'm getting credit to work out. You guys, like we have to pay for gym memberships. Why aren't you guys working out? Like I'm trying to get all my, you know, classmates into it. Um, and we danced in my music group. So I got a lot of influence with that. And I had this phenomenal substitute teacher or not substitute. She was, um, she was studying. So she was, what did they call that? Like a practicum teacher. She was in college about to graduate and she became, um, she graduated and then she took over um, our class because our teacher became a principal at another school. And I loved the way she taught step aerobics. And I felt like as a person that didn't have a lot of fitness experience, sports experience, because I focused more on like the dance side of things. Um, step aerobics was a very translatable skill for me and I love feeling successful with things. And it was, to me, it was simple enough that I could get it, you know, rhythmic, the dance moves or the step moves were four count or eight count. Like it wasn't hard for me to pick it up really quickly and ended up getting PE student of the year at my senior year in high school. And I'm like, what? I've never even been in class before, but just working a little bit harder than everybody else, I guess that made me stand out from the crowd and decided from that experience to get a degree in PE, thinking that I would learn more about dance. Um, but I learned a lot of about sports <laughs> and we did a lot of team sports training. And one of my favorite professors, I, I graduated from a small private school in, um, in close to Tacoma, Washington. That's like one of the bigger cities, uh, Pacific Lutheran University. And Dr. Hackers, she's a sports psychologist of the women's USA soccer team. And she works there. That's like her day job is uh, teaching, you know, undergraduate level courses and whatnot and studied under her and really took a passion to the psychology side of exercise and movement and sport. And so that was a huge influence for me um, just because I've always had kind of a psychological mindset. And um, then I started teaching for a little while in the public schools. I graduated in 2008, uh, but there wasn't a lot of full-time jobs. Like the economy was really struggling at that point, if you remember that time frame. Um, so lots of part-time teaching gigs, you know, you get, you get laid off because the budget's too tight for the school district and then you get hired back and things like that. So that was kind of my, my beginning stages and uh, just got blessed to go back to school to get a master's thinking, oh, I'll keep getting more degrees and they'll pay me more because that's the way it works. And luckily got blessed to have 100% of my tuition covered to teach step aerobics at Oregon State University, that class that uh, I took my senior year. One, I had one like six months experience, paid for $60,000 in tuition and my stipend each month. So I was, I was hugely blessed for that. So. so what did you do? You know, because a lot of people, you know, we graduate. You know, I was talking to my son. He's 16 years old. Uh-huh. And um, he wants to be uh, oh, not he, not a fitness trainer. I forget what he wants to do, but he want you know he he's taking all AP courses, and uh -huh. he's, you know 
he's high honors awesome. and um, you know he looking at different colleges to go to and i told him i said you know if you're going to get into uh an ath- athletic trainer that's what it is yeah okay yeah you know but i told him i said you know make sure that it's going to be something that you love mm-hmm. it, 80% of people that go to college you know get a degree within 3 years they're no longer in that same field yeah Make sure that you love what you do. Yeah. So what was your thought process when you graduate? Because then you graduate and then you're like, okay, I got a degree. Now what? Yeah. Because you know, you're like, I'm no longer a student. You know, now I got to get a full-time job. What, what were some of your steps to finding the job that you loved? Yeah, that's, I love that question too, because honestly, I was a little frustrated um, after getting my undergraduate degree because uh, I did I did the thing right. I chose something that I was going to be passionate about, but then the job market was terrible, and I was like, "Well, shoot, what am I going to do now?" And so that summer, I ended up driving uh, for the Wounded Warrior Battalion. I drove soldiers at uh, it's now called Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington State, and. That was my moneymaker for the day. I, n- I didn't plan on driving a van, but I got to have conversations in my car that was kind of like giving and receiving therapy and getting that perspective of our veterans, um, taking them to doctor's appointments or picking them up from you know the gas station or wherever they needed to go. Uh, most of them were there for PTSD. They had a big uh, mental health, I think, training facility there and um, providing them with you know psychotherapy and whatnot. Uh, and that that was a, that was a shift for me. I think that helped to influence me to get more confident on the therapeutic side of things. Um, I've always had a huge passion for music. So that was always on the side. I went through some PTSD in college through just dating somebody that wasn't good for me and connected to uh, a band just from writing a song and somebody encouraged me to start singing. So I was doing that on the side outside of the day job and we got to sing at restaurants and uh, whatnot around that time frame. That was around 2008, 2010. And then when I went to grad school, uh, they of course had to find a new singer because I'm no longer local, uh, but I'd come up and visit and occasionally do gigs with them. So music's always been a huge part for me and Honestly, like getting the degree in PE, my focus was like, I already was singing college level music in high school or above. Um, my first performance as a singer, I was five years old and I sang in front of a church, uh, you know, it was like kids church, but there was 300 kids there. So I've always needed to up the level and challenge. We got to sing for the supersonics, my senior year in high school, sing on stage inside of Disneyland as a high school student. Um, I, I had gotten so many opportunities to do tremendous performing um, ops that I didn't feel like getting that degree in music was really necessary. I needed to add value and, and get better at things that I wasn't good at, but were related to what I wanted to eventually do. Um, so I thought I'd be a teacher forever. I thought I'd teach PE and dance and sing outside of school, but that, uh, that didn't work. That didn't work out. Um, you know, I got tired of getting laid off every year and getting demoted FTE, not because of anything on my part, but because the job market wasn't, you know, there, they didn't appreciate, the specialists, for whatever reason, um, No Child Left Behind Act required you to take a test that you had to pay for in order to 
teach a different subject area that you might have expertise in. So there's a little bit of political stuff there. I don't want to get into the negative talk, but um, I'd say just trying to find ways to do things you're passionate about, whether it's the job or whether it's outside the job to, you know, bring joy to my life every day. Um, okay. Now I got a question for you. Yeah. Um, now when I was, like I said, when we talked on the show, I grew up and I was an abused child. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when I was like five or six, I would get in the bathtub, fill up the tub to where just my ears were in, under the water. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't hear them arguing and screaming and I would read and that mm-hmm. became faith haven. Mm-hmm. Are you dealing with your stuff? Whatever happened in college? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, did your music become your safe haven? Did it help you dealing with your with your struggle with the you know, post traumatic stress? Definitely, hundred percent, definitely did. And looking back, most of the tough seasons I've gone through, <laughs> there's been a a great song that's come out of it. So <laughs> there's always that positive. All right, this is going to be the next hit, or it just brings me joy to to sing it. Mm-hmm. And now you know, like we talked in a little while ago about journaling. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are listening to this are either struggling maybe with PTSD or MST, military sexual trauma and stuff like that. How has journaling helped you and and the people that you've talked to in the past? Journaling is phenomenal. Um, And there's different ways to journal. You can do free form where there's no specific prompt. You're just writing your feelings out. Um, I've gone through different stages in my life where I've written every night or every day, uh, multiple times a day. When I'm going through a huge transition, I'm keeping that journal on my body at all times because that's when I get, you know, either song ideas or uh, when you have too, when your stress level is too high, if you think of it as like you have this cup of water and the the water represents your stress when you get all the way up to the top if you get too much stress things start falling out and for me that's short-term memory and so I know that about myself so when I'm in a higher transitional state I will journal more I will write more um, and it's physical writing some people can you know type things out or type into their phone, um, texting into their notes or whatnot. For me, it's physically writing, like moving my fingers is very cathartic. It helps relieve stress. Um, and it also opens up um, positive pathways in the mind to start bringing processing in. Because um, sometimes when we're going through stress, we're so tunnel vision with that situation. You know what I mean? And, and so it just it helps to open up other possible scenarios or maybe you have to figure out like, Uh, If you're in a financial strain, for example, like, okay, what are some ways I can bring money in and write it down? You know, oh, I can start a business. I can sell my stuff, whatever. Um, I think writing is super important. And there's a lot of empirical data to back that up as well. You know, and the funny thing is I tell people when I that when I wrote my book, I actually wrote it out on yellow paper. Mm -hmm. And um and that's when, like you said, that's when it got real, mm-hmm. when you see it written down. Yeah. Um, and, and even people that, you know, high achievers like Gary Vee, and mm-hmm. they talk about making sure you put pen to paper. Yeah. Because it's different than, like you said, clicking in a phone. Yeah. Because this way, you know, it's in your handwriting. Yeah. You said, so if you fail on it, it's because you wrote it down and you didn't accomplish it. So it's your fault. Yeah. 
So, okay, you have a lot of, you know, years in fitness industry. Mm-hmm. Then you create a 16-week program. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, so I uh, was going through divorce process, and it just had finalized a couple months before. And I was, at that time, I was a manager of a gym, but I was working too many hours and got burned out. Um, ranked like top 100 in the nation, never sold anything in a fitness industry before, but it was a job to help me out during that divorce process. And once I decided I can't do this job anymore, because it was like nine to nine with like no days off and you te- you get texts on your days off. So I was like, all right, I need something else and got this awesome opportunity to work for the state um, at a psychiatric hospital and basically work in active treatment. So it's kind of like school for adults. Uh, they would come down to our treatment mall uh, two hours in the morning and then two hours in the afternoon. And then they lived on the wards. So we would escort them to their wards between uh, morning and afternoon groups. And I had a week of orientation training where they did a lot of safety training, um, education on mental illness. Uh, most of the people in that training were nurses or nurse practitioners or LPNs. Um, a few of us were rec specialists. That was my title, rec, I think rec specialist three for the state. Um, and after that week of training, then we got put into our areas where we would be working in the hall. They had four different halls there. And I worked in South Hall, which was a long-term stay. So six months minimum for them. Um, some of them were living there for 30 plus years. Uh, many of them criminal offenders, not all, but many of them were 87% schizophrenic, bipolar disorder. Um, they were warning us, like, keep your back to the wall, you know, worst case scenario. Like, these are things, if you're going to get um, attacked, these patients can, you know, out of nowhere, slug you across the face. You always want to be aware of your surroundings. Like, my level of stress was pretty high going into the job. Um, and then... Uh, my dad passed away my third day working with patients, um, and it was tough. It was really tough. We knew he his cancer had come back from when I was 11. They thought they got it all as kidney cancer, but at this point, um, it had spread to the other part of his body. We think it had laid dormant, and then just a lifestyle of working too many hours, not getting enough sleep, you know, poor diet, not enough movement, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, of course, these are all theories, who knows, really. Um, but I'm in this new job. I'm learning patients' names. I have a high-stress training that I had the week before. And then my dad dies, and I'm sitting in one of the groups. I'm co-facilitating. But at this point, like, they're just letting me kind of, like, shadow my first couple weeks there, um, the other uh, facilitators for group therapy, just to kind of learn the ropes and whatnot. And my colleague, Sayaka, she was teaching mindfulness-based cognitive therapy group. And she, I showed up um, the next day uh, after he passed because I was like, I don't want to stay in my apartment by myself. Like, I'm not trying to, like, put a blanket over my head. I, I got to take action. I got to keep it moving. And she asked me in front of the whole group, Erin, <laughs> do you mind telling the group what you're going through? And I was like yeah, I mind. I don't want to talk about it, but I'm glad that she, glad that she asked because it encouraged me to share. And yes, of course I let out cries because he had just died the day before. And one of the guys that was sitting at our table, it was a small group, I think maybe 11 or 12 were in that group that day. And he's a retired 
Marine, high level executive, corporate America, lost his wife to cancer. And but I didn't know that. So I'm crying, I'm grabbing the tissue, and he opens up and he starts sharing, you know, I lost my wife had a nine year battle with cancer. I'm so sorry for your loss. And what had happened was, and my colleague was so smart about it. She's maybe 10, 15 years older than me. She knew exactly what needed to happen in order to create a sense of camaraderie and trust, uh, build rapport. She knew I needed to share something tough because these patients are processing through, many of them processing through tragedy, processing through maybe if they committed a crime and forgiving themselves and, you know, stopping the addiction and whatnot. And he became at that point from that day forward, he became my bodyguard, if you will, my protector within the hospital. Um, if any patients were disrespectful, he would tell them to shut up and know your role and you need to respect the women here and things like that. Um, and, not just him, but that was like the first step. And it encouraged me to find a way that I could add value to the community because the culture there was so empathic and positive. It was nothing like our training for that week because the training was like the main security people that have to think worst case scenario because they don't want lawsuits and they don't want anybody injured. Uh, but the people that I actually worked with, it was a variety of years of experience. And so we had a couple of newbies like myself, but for the most part, they were there for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years working there. My boss was there for 30 years. Um, and then the patients, a lot of them were there for a long time. So it was like a family feel. And they were so supportive during that time that I was like, how can I add value? And so just shadowing the different groups, um, the fitness class sucked. I mean, not to disrespect anybody, but they didn't have a fitness background. And prior to working there, I, right after grad school, I got an awesome opportunity to work with our U.S. Army and Air Force at that same military base at JBLM that I had driven the Wounded Battalion a few years prior. I got an opportunity to be a part of a wellness uh, coaching program, the Armed Wellness Forces Center, I think it was what we titled it, um, in located in one of the gyms. And so they would come and get tested with us. We did bod pod testing, which the NFL uses. Um, we did treadmill, submax, cardiorespiratory testing. We did... Uh, basal metabolic testing, which basically says how many calories your body is at rest. And then we coached them based on um, actual numbers of here's where you're at and here's how we're going to help you improve um, exercise prescription. They essentially would come to us for doctor's appointments and whatnot. And when you're working with the military, your standards have to be high. Um, all of our first patients, if you will, were all the top level leaders. <laughs> so we had to make sure that you know, we're doing things well and just I take pride in my work and everything that I choose to do. And so when I saw that this class that was being offered to these patients that were there in a locked facility that couldn't help but be there, uh, for example, their fitness program was a yoga DVD or a walking DVD every day, the same two DVDs every single day, every single week until eternity. And I was like, no, like I would be bored to death and I'm not a patient here. So I just decided that I was going to make something better and had a supportive boss. And that's kind of where so it started. you did a 16 week program, um, yeah. you know, now, cause I'm, I'm the kind of guy that 
you know, if you, somebody tells me to go to the gym, you know, uh, and they show me a couple exercises, I'll do them for about a week. And, but then mm-hmm. come the second week, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm just going to do whatever I want. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. you know, what makes the people stay on the program? Is it, are they showing gradual improvement week to week, uh, a weekly basis? So it keeps them coming mm-hmm. back. So how do the people stay in your program? What makes them want to stay in your program? That's a great question. Uh, I think part of it was uh, my one of my genius skills is bringing community, bringing people together. Um, it wasn't just fitness. It was a cross-curricular positive psychology. We did journaling, group discussion, and then we worked out together. So it was psychotherapy, but it wasn't just let's talk about our problems. It was I intended to ask questions to get them in a positive state of mind. So I designed the journal uh, with weekly focused topics. And so similar to how I post my content, um, each day was one journal prompt. So they had a few minutes to write on the prompt. And then uh, we shared together those that felt comfortable sharing. If they didn't feel comfortable sharing, then they were their job was to listen and absorb. And then the workouts were different every single day. And I provided um, just with my background in the psych uh, sports psych and exercise psych. Uh, when you give selection and opportunity for the participant, whether it's a student, athlete, you know, college student, or elementary student, or it's a person in the military that you're working with, or it's you know, uh, employee. If you give them an option to be selective and to make a choice, that's going to give them a sense of empowerment. So I knew that. So I was like, all right, well, we're we're getting a variety of levels of fitness here. Um, why don't I let them choose if they want an easy workout, a medium workout or a hard workout. And we just decided this is a no judgment zone just cause it's, you know, it's a psych hospital. So you gotta be super empathetic. And so they got some selectivity with that. Um, and then for me personally, just my, my personality, I'm not a grind it out kind of like I'm not a drill sergeant that's not that's not my persona I'm more like warm encouraging like I can get to that if the person needs it because I know how to adjust my coaching style Um, but for the most part most of these patients were obese or morbidly obese because I saw all their numbers our registered dietitian emailed it out to us on a monthly basis and uh, people that are, you know, detrained athletes, or maybe they've never had a positive experience around fitness, they need you to slow down expectations and meet them where they're at um, with no judgment. Lots and lots of if you're listening to this and you uh, work with obese people or they've never had a positive experience around exercise, lots of encouragement initially is what is going to help them um, stick with the program. Um, but it has to be authentic things. So point out the good, like, hey, I really like how you did that squat. You kept your knees over your ankles. Um, you know, your rhythm is perfect. Um, then you can throw in a corrective thing after it's been a while. Or if they're like one of my patients was mid-20s, he was super fit already because he already exercised. So for him, I adjusted his workouts to I didn't let him do an easy workout ever. I was like, hey, man talk to him on the side outside a group. I'm like, Hey, you know, you're one of the most athletic people in this hall. Right. And he's like, he kind of, you know, felt good about himself and smiled. I said, so that means that 
we got to keep challenging your muscles in order to keep you improving. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to push you a little bit harder than I'm going to push the rest of the group just because you're at a different level. And he like respected where I was coming from with that. So we just, you know, adjusted accordingly. So I think that helped a lot to make people want to come back because I didn't treat them all the same. I treated them each where they were at. If that makes oh, sense. I love that. Now, you know, you know, people know me as the comeback coach and because I help mm-hmm. people come back and um, you are known as the move happy girl, mm-hmm. you know, and it's great when people, you know, talk about you instead of you talking about yourself. That's why I'm a big guy <laughs> that like to talk about himself at all. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I was always taught that um, heroes talk about themselves, but legends get talked about. So I'd rather be talked mm-hmm. about than talk about myself. But I'm going to have like to bra- have to have you brag on yourself a little bit. <laughs> okay. You know, so how did you become the move happy girl? Yeah. Um, so the first round we had of the program, we had max capacity. And I think how it happened, what really built the credibility was not that we had a full group of people and we had like, it was like a fun contest with how many patients you could get in your group. Like whoever had the most, you were like the cool, the cool instructor, if you will. Um, But I incorporated uh, both fitness questionnaires to get objective measurements, as well as I designed a happiness questionnaire and included in that um, as any professional should, you should always measure how you're doing if you want to improve. And I asked the patients for their feedback. They were so shocked because the culture there, aside from our hall um, where they lived on the wards, a lot of burned out staff did not care about their input. Um, And I think that's how it started was asking them for their feedback And then not just asking, but following through and making positive changes within the group each time. Um, Got to run the program successfully three times. And by the third round, had been invited to interview for a promotion within the hospital. My boss told me that I wouldn't even be interviewed, wouldn't even be asked to be interviewed. Um, Not in a negative way, but she said, I've worked here for 30 years and they really prefer those that have master's degrees uh, that are state licensed psychologists. So when she told me that, I was like, I've been able to do, I'm thinking this, I didn't tell her this, I'm thinking this. I've been able to do so many things in my life so far that most people have not been able to do because I've had, you know, people encourage me or I've just said, no, I'm going to find a way to do it. And so I started paying attention. How can I add value here? How can I add value there? I got really fast at my job charting notes. So the last hour of the day um, after groups, I asked um, one of my mentors there, Dr. Hill, who's a psychologist. Um, he works in private practice now. Um, he's veteran, son of a veteran, Air Force veteran. Um, he's a super positive guy and encouraging. He told all of us that if we ever needed anything, we could reach out to him. So he had a welcoming kind of persona. And I asked him, I said, I know you got a lot on your plate. You got to go to court for these patients. I know you got way too much going on. I've gotten really fast at my job. 
I want to add more value and I was thinking we could do an exchange. I need one-on-one experience um, to add to my resume so I can interview for this position and um, I'd love to help, you know, ease your stress level, if you will. Um, are you open to me doing one-on-one kind of therapy within the hospital under your advisement? And he's like, yeah, go ahead and write up a little, you know, one pager on your therapeutic style. And then we'll do an interview process just like you would for a job and make sure it's official. And um, I'll be your mentor, if you will. Um, and you'll be providing the one-on-one therapy to the patient's. Um, for using positive psychology like therapy as well as walking therapy. And so I had a couple of patients that I was doing with that. Um, And I also had written a book and published it. Um, So my dad passed the third day on the job on a Wednesday. That following Saturday, I had released the book on Amazon. What is is the name of that book? It's called Whole Life Affirmations, uh, just little stories, affirmations that I wrote and then little stories. Most of them are from my life experiences. Some of them are made up to help tie in with the affirmations uh, to help in, um, people live a life that um, they believe that is possible, um, not one that they just have to live with, but that you can help design your own life. And I wasn't planning on it, but I uh, one of my friends that who's also got a couple books out, she said, you can get um, you can get the author's copy from Amazon for like four dollars a copy if you buy it in bulk, like 10 copies. And then you can sell it, you know, with the autograph and make some money. And I needed help with my rent because divorce is expensive. <laughs> and um, so I printed copies of it and I gave my boss, Sue, I gave her a copy of the book. And I said, I'm just so grateful to have a job here in one location because at one point I had five part-time jobs simultaneously and I was just grateful to just drive to one spot and not be stretched so thin and she ended up promoting it (laughs) during our morning meeting to everybody and I sold out all my books that day and that covered my rent for that month and one of my colleagues Mark uh, was working on he would go to our trainings every morning we had like a 15 minute you know briefing on what happened the night before in case anybody was like on ward hold for uh, suicide threats or, you know, got in a fight or things like that. And he worked on one of the wards. Well, I didn't know it, but he was reading my book to the patients that weren't ready to come down for treatment. So then the patients heard stories about me. And then those patients, I'm sure, shared stories to other patients um, on that ward and then, you know, conversations, I'm sure, with the professionals and whatnot, I think just word spread over time, over the course of that year. And um, yeah, I think, I think just, just adding value every day, just being grateful and just adding value. Um, We had a end of the summer barbecue they do annually. And it is like half the hall. So two of the halls, uh, in the morning and then two of the halls in the afternoon, they would go outside and all of us staff were outside. They had a karaoke station. They had a live rock band, um, you know, balloon toss, face painting, like all kinds of fun stuff for the patients. I volunteered to be at the karaoke station because I love to sing, of course. And I asked them, some of the patients were nervous to sing. So they had some kind of like silence time. They're like, come on, like, can anybody just sing? I was like, throw on some Mariah Carey emotions. So I sang that song and I didn't know, but like, I guess all the halls heard me sing. And one of my 
uh, colleagues. Uh, she worked on one of the wards. I never had really met her because we didn't have a lot of meetings together. But she walked up to me and was like, hey, I heard you sing. You have a phenomenal voice. I juggle and I want to teach the patients how to juggle. Do you want to do a, a group together and you can teach them how to sing and um, I'll teach them how to juggle? And I was like, okay, that sounds like cool. I was like, so like performing arts kind of? And she's like, yeah, I think it would help them, you know, build confidence to uh, some of the patients when they'd get discharged would apply for jobs and, you know, so interview skills and just like confidence, public speaking, if they want to, you know, get into the professional space. And I was like, okay, well, one of my coworkers, Rick, he is a former comedian. Um, he used to tour around, I think, Canada and the U.S., I can ask him if he wants to do it and we could do three, you know, different instructors. And if you're cool with it and she's like, yeah, sure. So just kind of me up in the level, I feel like helped to up the level of other people. And she wasn't supposed to um, <laughs> come down and uh, teach groups um, on our, on our um, area. Cause she was assigned to a certain area, but my boss let it slide. I think just cause she, uh, she had a soft spot for me just with my dad, you know, passing away that year. And so I got to do some things that maybe were a little outside of the box. Uh, but that was the second group that got started. And then towards the end of that one, um, I started interviewing around the hospital at that point. And then I landed the promotion. I earned the promotion by the third round and had my coworker cover for me for the Move Happy group. And she stopped me in the hall one day and was like, Aaron, I got to tell you, I love your group. The patients know exactly what to do. It's simple to run. And I get to work out during the day too, which is awesome because I know I need to exercise, but I'm exhausted by the end of the day. And so I knew it was a duplicatable program at that point. And um, working in that new promoted role, I was responsible for, I think there was 28 patients on, on that ward, um, which was the same ward that Dr. Hill worked on and um or cross cross the hall from and so i could reach out if i needed help from him and yeah i was doing the one-on-one -on -one therapy and covering for groups and whatnot for a little bit and i think that's how that was a long answer to your question but i think that's how i became the move happy girl across so now, campus uh and there you know people are listening and there's going to be like people like me um that um you know like we're in the military like i talked about on your show you know we, you know, we yeah. would do PT whether we were sober, whether we were drunk. It didn't matter. Every morning we were out there running, <laughs> push up, sit ups. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, we get out. You know, maybe five years later, we're thirty pounds heavier, eating bonbons. You know, eating bonchon and and pre diabetic and all the other things. Yeah. What are some of the things that we can do? You know, because I find I like I said, I used to be in the health and fitness industry. So January yeah. 2nd, everybody would show up at GNC, but put like mm -hmm. $400 worth of stuff on the counter because they're going to get healthy all of a sudden. And I would mm -hmm. be putting things back on the shelves and they'd be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, we don't need this. You want, you need to start out basic and it's a lifestyle change. It's just to hit it and yeah. quit it. So yeah. what are some things that people like myself can do if we want to get back in shape? It's good, but something that we could do gradual that we can stick, stick with. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, for those listening, I had zero budget and created this program. We had $100 to split each month between 15 staff. 
if you divide that out, that's $6.66. So we literally had no money to buy equipment. Um, I couldn't buy two dumbbells. So I knew that it was going to have to be body weight exercises. There is so much you can do. There's so much power in just moving your body and moving in different ways. Um, so prior to working there, I went and got certified through the gold standard as was recommended from my undergraduate professor, Dr. Hacker. So whatever she said was gold standard, I listened because she worked with the, you know, first place USA women's soccer team. She was their sports psychologist. So she said ACSM is gold standard. So I went and got my group fitness certification uh, through the American College of Sports Medicine. And what they recommend for every workout, if you're going to do a workout, you want to have these three components in all your workouts, whether it's a 30-minute workout, 20-minute workout, hour, two-hour, whatever. You want to always have a cardio exercise of some sort. You want to always have a muscle fitness exercise of some sort. So your muscle strength, muscle endurance, um, that's just kind of an umbrella term. And then you want to have flexibility that's going to help decrease your DOMS effect, delayed onset of muscle soreness, and it's also going to help reduce injury risk. Um, I dive a little bit deeper. If you are listening and you're a fitness instructor, uh, you want to try to incorporate the three planes of motion and I don't want it to be too complicated, but frontal is just going forward and back. For example, um, you're walking, that would be a frontal plane thing. Sagittal is gonna be sideways. So if you're doing some sumo squats, um, cartwheels, things like that. Um, and then your transverse, which is twisting. So you're doing the twisted shake or you're doing some, uh, maybe some oblique, um, what do they call it? Oblique planks, things like that. Um, incorporating the three planes of motion is going to help balance your body so that as you build out strength gradually, you're not building it on one part of your body and then you're not balanced on the other. Um, I can go into so much detail with this, but you know, like with math, you what you do to one side of the equation, you got to do to the other to keep it balanced. So if you are doing a bunch of Push-ups, for example, you're working your chest muscles, you're working your biceps, you want to flip it over and you want to do some tricep dips. You want to uh, maybe incorporate if you could get a cheap band, you know, $10 exercise band from your favorite store, fitness store, Walmart, whatnot, um, doing some upright rows or some rear back exercises to get those back muscles. Um, whatever muscle fitness exercise you choose in your workout, if you can't get all your major muscles in, is to make sure you do a front and a back or the left side and the right side. You know, and like I've taught when I, when I used to, cause I used to personal train a lot of people, like I said, you know, different <laughs> athletes. And if you're just dieting, you know, you're going mm -hmm. from a big pair to a smaller pair, but just pair. You yeah. know what I mean, and there's such yeah. thing as, you know, skinny fat, you know, being skinny. Fat. So yeah. what are some of your Definitely. thoughts on, you know, cause like a lot of people, We'll go out there, you know, they're, that first January 2nd to January 5th, they're eating kale and they're eating, you know, shakes and not eating. And on that, the next yeah. Friday, they're like, they just binge out because they're like, wait a minute, I've been eating kale for the last week. This sucks. And they go back to the way they used to be. So what are some of the things that they can do if they're going to try to change their, their diet gradually? 
Yeah, and this is a great question too. And we were actually trained. Um, so I was a graduate teaching assistant at Oregon State, um, and part of that, I took a class for like the legal coverage of what is ethical to educate as a fitness instructor because you do get lots of questions about diet often. And one thing to be aware of if you're listening and you're a college student right now, uh, especially like Caucasian middle class females, uh, you're higher risk for eating disorders. So don't take all of my words as that's what you need to go and eat yourself. I would say find what works best for you. Follow the my plate recommendations. You know, half the plate should be a variety of veggies. If you can get multiple colors in there, that's going to be excellent. You know, a quarter size of it's going to be your grains, if you will, quarter size protein. And then if you can have, you know, a cup, eight ounce size cup of your either dairy or non-dairy product, um, you know, varying it up is definitely going to be super helpful for me. What works really well for me is mainly plant-based diet. Um, I do, uh, someone told me at one point, I think it was my brother told me I was a pescatarian. So I have occasional fish that feels really good for me, but I occasionally will splurge because um, I have like some allergies to dairy, so I can't always have it, but I like to cheat because I like, <laughs> I like the flavor. Uh, but then I feel it usually, you know, for the next week. And then I'm like, all right, I'm never doing this again. And, you know, so just be easy on yourself. If you're trying to adjust your diet, I would say with anything, it's not all or nothing. You can maybe change one thing this week. And then once you get that down as a habit, then maybe add another thing next week um, to, to be, to make it gradual. Yeah, for you know, guys, what I found beneficial for me, cause you know, I can't really get out right now, my eyesight and everything, but I found that I stopped eating at 10 o'clock in the evening and then I don't eat again until 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And it, that seems to help my body, um, you know, in that rest period, but it also helps seem to digest mm -hmm. so that might be something that somebody you mm -hmm. know might be able to look at in the future if you think it out if you yeah. can diet um but you know if you can just um t you know stop eating like eight nine o'clock at night and don't eat again until about 12 the next day then your body actually starts digesting its food and actually starts burning mm -hmm. food you know natural and people don't realize that the word breakfast comes from the word break your fast you know, so mm -hmm. you should be fasting, you know, eight to 10 hours a day to let your body do what your body's supposed to do. Okay. Last couple of questions that we yeah. got was about yeah. your nonprofit and Nicole ministries. Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this. Um, I went through a really scary season this past winter. I, uh, had my businesses compromised, um, nasty digital attackers. I'm not sure exactly who did it, but someone got into my both. I have two businesses and locked up emails, everything, and then got a home break in at that same time. And my former business mentor like completely betrayed me. And I'm in this safe house and I'm like just trying to survive and figure out like what is left, what is right, what actions and pri how to prioritize what I need to do to keep safe, but also not lose out on all of this work I've put out since 2016, really working at that hospital. And um, I just met a random stranger through my safe housing who just happened to be a veteran, elder veteran, veteran. And he actually believed me when a lot of the local authorities were kind of writing me off and helped me out. And some through his connections to first responders and whatnot, they restored all my business technologies. 
they kept me safe during that time when uh, it was confirmed from a cybersecurity expert friend that I had on my podcast a couple months ago uh, that someone was using the Find My iPhone app on there to follow me essentially and know exactly where I was at, which was really scary as a, as a woman. And just as a person, that's not a, not, I'm not a fighter. <laughs> I'm a lover. Um, and so my nonprofit really stemmed from that experience. Uh, I could never repay those people that did what they did for me and they didn't even know who I was. Many of them were homeless veterans, um, extremely intelligent people. I'm super grateful for and I said how to myself, how can I, how can I repay them for getting me back? You know what I mean? Like a fresh start, being alive, first of all, and also restoring my businesses. And I said, all right, well, I can sing. <laughs> I can do that. Um, during that time, I was about, I think about eight weeks, I was in safe housing with um, this gentleman. I ended up helping, uh, turned into, I was his caretaker and he got me a keyboard and we would jam out on the keyboard and we wrote some songs together and whatnot. I wrote eight songs during that time frame when I couldn't do anything online. And I hadn't written a song prior to that for like six years. So lots of creativity was flowing in that time frame. Lots of healing was going on. And one morning I had this idea to provide a way. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, one of my genius zones is to bring people together, build community. And a lot of veterans and a lot of first responders are thinking about ending their lives. It's uh, There's different data out there, but some of the, what I've seen most consistently is around 10 times more likely than average Americans to contemplate suicide or end their lives completely and, and make that final decision. And I want to be able to help decrease those stats. Um, so each month, uh, I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't repay. I can never repay, but I'm going to do my best to try. So each month this year, I'm, I'm providing online concerts for all veterans, all first responders, whether they're active duty, retired and their families, um, of course, friends can, can come as well. Uh, but my priority is for, for those that have been in the line of duty, uh, first and foremost, and uh, not just myself performing, but I've been able to have incredible musicians that have stepped up to donate their time and because they love our veterans, they love our first responders, and it's time that the rest of us um, Americans or in U.S. friendly countries uh, step up and show our gratitude because um, if you're listening to this and you're a veteran or a first responder, I know you don't get paid what your value is and um, so this is my one way of trying to support and, and give back. Okay. So. Well, that leads into the last two questions. How do we yeah. find you? How do we get in touch with you? How do we support your mission? And um, when you, when we log off, I want you to send me the link to your book because I'm going to put that in the show notes. So how can we find you and how can we support okay. your mission? Yeah, um, definitely. My tagline and everything is don't forget to tell someone you love them today because, uh, you know, I lost my dad in seven weeks from from the diagnosis. So life is fleeting. We never know when our last day is. So if you could be kind to those you're around and, and tell your loved ones that you love them or show them through whatever their love language is. Uh, as far as this nonprofit, if you are a veteran or first responder, you know, you can definitely reach out to me on 
um, any social media platform. LinkedIn is probably where I'm at most frequently. You can email me, um, Aaron at themovehappy.com. That's E-R-I-N. Um, or they can, you know, reach out to you and, um, you know, get my link um, through through you as well. Um, and then as far as support, I've got a couple of sponsors that have lined up. But if anyone is interested and is passionate about our veterans, uh, if they do want to sponsor, um, what I'll be using the funds for is to up-level equipment for guest musicians and eventually um, ha- host an in-person concert experience uh, and a medical symposium to help improve the treatment of people with uh, depression and all mental illness. Um, because there was at that hospital, there was a lot of burned out staff and I get it. I totally get it. But people are human beings, whether they have mental illness or they got a broken leg, it should not be uh, treated differently. I love that. Okay. Last question. I love asking this question because mm-hmm. I ask a hundred people, mm-hmm. I get a hundred different answers. Uh, you know, we live in such okay. a crazy world, you know, grandparents are, are homeschooling kids and the whole COVID thing. Yeah. So if you ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask a person to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, mm-hmm. they're more likely. So if somebody out there is struggling with their health or mental wellness, mm-hmm. what can they do in the next 24 mm-hmm. hours to get help? I love that question. So to get help, a variety of answers, I would say first and foremost, get up and move your body, put on some awesome music that makes you feel spectacular and don't even put your shoes on, put your socks on, go to your kitchen and start dancing. Um, So definitely do that for maybe 10, 15 minutes. If you could do longer, definitely do longer and then call a friend or someone that you love that has added value to you and thank them and tell them exactly why you love them. Because when you contribute and you tell someone else, it pours it into you as well. And then if you are absolutely thinking those self-harm thoughts, there is a suicide hotline um, reach out to a therapist, psycho, you know, psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, reach out to your primary care physician, reach out to somebody. Don't just try and be by yourself because we are not islands. I love that. So guys, if you're listening to this, definitely get in touch with Erin, pick up the book, definitely check out her programs, whatever she's got going on. Um, I'm going to also hook you up with my friend, Tammy Moses. Have you, so you can go on her podcast so you can talk about her mission. Mm-hmm. And, oh, her podcast is called The Hoarding Solution, but she's also talking about mental people with mental health issues. So, uh, definitely check out the podcast, it, guys. If you listen to this and if you got something great out of this, please leave a comment on Apple. Let them know that we're doing um, our job to help change the world. None of us are getting paid for this, this is all just trying to change lives. So, just leave a comment if you like the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, I thought that was great. It, mm-hmm. Now, this is going to won't come out for a couple of weeks because I'm very backlogged, but it will come out. But okay. I promote it on like 10 different platforms. So it's going to go out everywhere. Oh, thank so you. thank you so much. Thank you. And so have much. a blessed day. And tell Hiram I said, hey. All right. God <laughs> okay. bless you. Have an amazing week. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.